Minor spoilers ahead for The Cat and the Canary. We avoid spoiling the ending, but we do discuss some of the plot points. To Haunted Spouse, a Haunted House podcast. I'm your ghost host, Laura Casey, and this is my Haunted Spouse and co-host, Ben. Hello. Tonight on Haunted Spouse, we'll be talking about The Cat and the Canary, the 1927 silent film. So I'm really excited to be getting into The Cat and the Canary. I had not seen or really heard anything of it before I started researching haunted houses in general. However, I saw that it was an influence for The House on Haunted Hill. Now that we've seen the silent film, I can definitely see how it might have been a major influence for the haunted house genre as well as the murder mystery genre. This was the first of many film adaptations of John Willard's 1922 dark comedy play of the same name. And I think we definitely see some of those comedic elements make their way into this film, despite it being considered part of the horror genre. Uh, We'll touch on some of that later. I would add also the theatrical elements as well. Yes. You can certainly see how this would have been a play originally adapted to film. Definitely. Even down to the way the actors emote and express themselves feels very theatrical. It was directed by the German expressionist Paul Linney. It was influential to a genre known as the old dark house genre. Runs sort of parallel, sort of intersecting with the haunted house genre in that a lot of what we see in haunted houses owe it to this old dark house trope. Um, So we'll be seeing some of that. A fun little story from the production of this film was that the director reportedly would use a gong to startle the actors. (laughs) So I just get this mental image of this director just rolling around a giant gong up behind the actors and then just... (laughs) The mental image that I get of that is very much uh, like a Looney Tunes type of situation. (laughs) Yes, very much a like, where did he get a gong from type of Uh (laughs) of situation. Although, I don't know which is funnier, him rolling around a giant gong and scaring them with it, or him having just this tiny gong (laughs) that he can like hold up right next to them (laughs) and set off. I love it. So yeah, uh, and I mentioned that this was the first of many filmed adaptations. Um, In 1930, there were two more, The Cat Creeps and La Voluntad del Muerto, uh, which were both the first talkie adaptations of the play. Probably the since I got the most well-known adaptation was the 1939 film, uh, which starred Bob Hope. 
Later on in 1961, there was a Swedish television series adaptation, and most recently, uh, in 1978, there was a British film produced based on The Cat and the Canary. I'll also posit that Knives Out, which came out pretty recently, takes inspiration from The Cat and the Canary. I just saw so many similarities. It feels I feel like very... it could not. Yeah, even down to the way the different family members have different interactions with the heir and how they feel about her. Mm -hmm. I think the whole premise is very similar. Yeah. Even down to the house having passageways and stuff Mm -hmm. in it. I have to wonder if, like, every old mansion at that time had secret passageways and bookcases that, like, spin around to reveal hidden hallways, or if that was specific to the old dark house. Yeah, like, was this ever really a thing, or did it become a thing because it was a part of this trope? But then, on the other hand, I feel like it makes sense when they didn't have the same level of home security technology available. Maybe that was something that made sense for people. Yeah. Or maybe if you had a lot of valuable things that people might want to steal, and you are living in a mansion that's pretty conspicuous, (laughs) that you would want to have booby traps and such (laughs) throughout your home. I don't know. Oh, and it certainly lends itself to the idea of these eccentric, (laughs) again, millionaires, which is never not going to be funny. (laughs) I agree. And you could say that they're paranoid, but at the same time, The whole point of this is about how the millionaire felt like he was being stalked like a canary surrounded by cats the way that his family members seemed to want to pounce on his wealth. And so can you even call it paranoia if it's totally justified? Yeah, like they act like he was crazy, but he was right. (laughs) And have maybe we've been doing like secret passageways and booby traps since, like, the pyramids, right? Uh, yeah. If you're going to store a bunch of wealth in a place that's quite conspicuous, maybe that's the way to do it. Hmm. And who's to say that current, maybe they're not millionaires, billionaires, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) don't have that type of home security (laughs) in addition to other types of home security. I don't know. I don't know. I bet they have, like, hidden panic rooms and stuff like that, probably. Mm -hmm. So, We have a podcasting closet. That's kind of the same thing, right? Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, it's cozy. <laughs> Multi-purpose room. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so as far as the vibe and the general feel from this film, it definitely clarified some things when I learned the director was an expressionist. I mean, I'm not enough of an art person to really be able to put to words the expressionism, but that feels right. One of the opening cards calls it a grotesque mansion and that also feels kind of right because everything's a little dusty a little cobwebby even though there's been a maid living there alone for the past 20 years (laughs) and it's hard exactly to put it into words but just the way that for instance Some of the windows are open and the drapes billow across the hallway. And you've got random panels in the house that open into tunnels that take you to the cellar. It 
kind of does feel a little bit grotesque. Yeah, it's um, squarely gothic architecture, I think. Um, And the interior matches the exterior in that regard. Even the chairs feel gothic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, even the chairs have spires, like... (laughs) And they look pointy and uncomfortable and heavy, but also grand at the same time, which I think is where we, at least as a modern audience, get that grotesque feel. Because something about grotesque is that, like, it could be really fancy and nice, but it's just a bit off. Like, it's too much and also a little bit off. Mm. Like, it's an uncanny valley plus luxury I think is a good way to describe a quote-unquote grotesque haunted house. Yeah. I like that. Uh, One thing I will also add, and I think this might have more to do with the filming technology of the time, but, like, the edges of the film get very dark, which leads to, I kind of felt at times, like, a sense of claustrophobia because... Every frame is kind of surrounded by this fade to black at the edges. And I don't know if that was necessarily intentional, because, like I said, that might have just been how the how film worked at the time. But it really upped the ante for me in some scenes because of that claustrophobia in each frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Um, in a way, it feels, like, poorly lit, but I think it's because of the technology at the time and also it being in black and white just naturally for me is just like oh, I have to squint to see <laughs> yeah well and a lot of it is in the movie itself the characters are using lamplight mm-hmm. I don't know how the set would have been lit itself so if they would have had other light but at the very least yeah the fact that they're all using lamplight at one point they even have to slide an oil lamp closer to someone so that he could read because I hadn't thought about that, that I wonder if that's also implying how dark the house is. Yeah. I was going to say too, that like, I don't know if this was intentional or if, again, this is just a result of a modern person watching an older film, but I just felt cold watching it. Like Mm. that this is a house that is not heated, which it probably isn't heated. Uh, probably does not have central heating, but I just got the vibe of like the vibe of when you go to a historic house and you have to like have your coat on the whole tour. Mm. That's, that's the feel that I was getting. Well, yeah. Cause there's even some scenes where the men are indoors wearing like capes over their suits, their full suits. Yeah. And the women are always, even after they've gotten ready for bed, they're still in these fur dressing gowns. <laughs> That actually leads me to the other thing I wanted to mention is that in this film, everyone is so dapper. (laughs) I love it. Great costumes, great makeup. I'm sure part of it was just because that's what everyone looked like in the 20s. Yeah. Personally, I'm a big fan of the bedtime slippers that have heels on them. (laughs) See, I found that so funny that they (laughs) slip out of heels only to then slip into only slightly lower heels to be quote-unquote more comfortable. (laughs) I love it. Also, the slippers didn't look that warm. I'm pretty sure they were... Were they open toe? They were at least open heel. 
So it's like, I don't even know how functional this is, but this is so fabulous. <laughs> Laura LaPlante, who plays the main character, Annabelle, her eyebrows are on fire. <laughs> yes, they deserve an award of their own. Mm-hmm. They need their own agent. I don't know. They are great. <laughs> yes. She does some great eyebrow acting in this movie. On that note, let's go ahead and introduce the characters now that we've introduced the house. So the first character we're introduced to is Cyrus West, the, I guess you could say, sort of patriarch of the family. Um, and we're introduced to the fact that he is sick and rich and his family is driving him mad um they do this through this kind of kind of funny kind of neat overlay of him i think in like a a chair or something overlaid with a shot of medicine bottles overlaid with a shot of black cats. They're really pouncing. Cute. They are pretty cute. Yeah. But yeah, they're supposed to be pouncing. And this is where his introduction is where we first see his own words describing his family as cats and he himself as a canary. So, yeah, then when he passes, he sets his will to not be opened for another 20 years, and his tormented ghost now wanders the house. Beautiful. So as we mentioned earlier, there is also a maid who has been taking care of the house for the past 20 years. Her name is Mammy Pleasant. In case you're wondering, she is played by a white woman, and this appears to be a white character. A distinction I feel like I need to make because this film came out the same year as the controversial film, The Jazz Singer. Now, she definitely has some haunted housekeeper energy. Another character asks if it's been lonely these 20 years alone in the house, and she replies, I don't need the living ones. And next up, Mr. Crosby arrives. He is... I think it's kind of implied possibly the attorney who helped draft the original will, and he is now here for the reading of the will. That's really all we get out of him. Not a whole lot of characterization. They kind of end up using him to help introduce the other characters. He'll say like, oh, so-and-so, I haven't seen you in forever, so that they can give you everyone's names as they show up. And I feel like that's kind of his role for now at least yeah he's responsible for a lot of the initial exposition and in case we haven't clarified this the film does pick up the night that the millionaire's will is read which is 20 years after his passing before mr crosby shows up at the house to read the will we see a shadowy figure in a cape come in and open the safe where the will is kept. We then see the figure returning the envelope, sealed again, to the safe. The first heir to arrive to the house for the reading is Harry Blythe. He is tall, boring. We're assuming Mr. West's nephew or great-nephew, some type of a relation who's looking like he's maybe in his 
20s or 30s? Yeah, something like that. Next, we're introduced to Charlie Wilder. All we really learn about him at the start is he is a cousin to Harry, presumably a nephew as well to Cyrus West. And we know that he and Harry seem to have some beef. Harry refuses to shake his hand when he arrives. The next potential heir to arrive is Aunt Susan. Whose aunt, you ask? Never specified. I don't know how she is related to the deceased, but she is an older lady. I'm assuming Harry and Charlie's aunt. And she arrives with her niece, Cecily. We spent maybe half an hour the second time we watched the film trying to figure out how everybody was related based on the very little information that's provided. Which, to be fair, all the information has to be provided on dialogue cards. (laughs) But I do want to note that Cecily appears to be there as a companion to Aunt Susan rather than as a potential heir herself. So my assumption is that she is related to Aunt Susan, but not directly related to the deceased. So maybe from marriage or something like that. Then we have Paul Jones, who is very quickly revealed to be the comedic relief character. Mm -hmm. He is pulling up in his car, gets stopped by a black cat in the road, gets out. For some reason, his tire blows. He gets scared, runs inside, and thinks that he's been shot at. And then he's talking to Mr. Crosby, trying to tell this story about how he was being shot at. But every time he tries to start telling his story, another one of the other heirs will come over to say hello and shake his hand. And then he'll start telling the story again, and another heir will come over. And this happens like three or four times before he finally tells this story of how he was being shot at in his car (laughs) because his tire blew. I I think it played really well. Like, it's genuinely funny. Oh, yeah. He's a hilarious character. So fun. (laughs) Yeah. Even down to the way he's dressed sets him apart from the more serious characters because the other men are wearing dark suits. I think they're wearing straight ties. He's wearing, it's hard to tell because it's obviously not in color, but what looks to be a tweed probably lighter brown suit and a bow tie and glasses and glasses which i guess makes you funny idk uh the glasses he's wearing definitely make him a little funny i I feel like they were designed to be a little quirky and they make him look less threatening and less serious also spoiler alert they do end up (laughs) being removed at the end of the film um yes and he looks creepier he's not as good looking (laughs) without his glasses (laughs) The last potential heir to arrive is Annabelle West. The way that she is introduced really sets her apart as being special in some way. She is a beautiful young lady with stylish hair and stylish clothing, seems to have really nice manners, and we learn that she and Paul Jones were close as kids, also that they are cousins. And close enough for it to imply that they maybe even had the same nurse, because Annabelle says, Why, Paul, I haven't seen you since nurse dropped you on your head. 
<laughs> and that tells us a thing or two about Paul. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, also, when Annabelle arrives, Aunt Susan and Cecily are commenting off to the side that she looks just like Cyrus, and also that she's probably crazy like he was rumored to be. But Aunt Susan tells Cecily, now, now, we don't know who's going to receive the fortune yet. So <laughs> let's keep those thoughts to ourselves for the time being. So once the heirs are all assembled, Mr. Crosby reads the will, and it is revealed that the estate will go to the most distant relative with the name West which is a convoluted way of saying it goes to Annabelle. And without actually naming Annabelle without specifically. Actually, yeah, which we also had a long discussion of trying to figure out why slash what was meant by him doing that. My theory on that is that he chose to wait the 20 years and just say the person most distantly related to me who still has my last name because he didn't really care who the fortune went to He just knew he didn't want it to go to the people who treated him poorly Mm. and called him crazy because they thought that they could gain inheritance. Yeah. It's also revealed that the will comes with the, quote, embarrassing condition that the heir must be evaluated by a doctor who will be arriving later that night and must be deemed sane. He felt that because everyone thought that he was insane, that then in turn he should require that his heir be deemed sane. Otherwise, the estate will go to someone named in a second envelope, which is only to be opened in the event that the first person is deemed insane. It's just occurring to me now, and maybe this is obvious, but I think that embarrassing condition was put in there to actually protect the heir such that they could point to that evaluation and say, you can't call me crazy. I've been evaluated. Whoa. (laughs) Okay. Because, like, I thought up until we just discussed it, I thought that he was being adversarial and trying to make things difficult for the next heir. And it does end up making things kind of difficult for her because, as the characters point out, that then gives whoever is named in the second envelope motivation to try to make her fail that evaluation. Hmm. Yeah, I had not thought about that, that he would be doing that to protect them. And I like that so much better now. Me too, me too. (laughs) Mr. Crosby, the attorney, also tells Annabelle that the safe was broken into and that the second person named knows that they are next in line for the inheritance. And as he is about to tell her the name of the person named in that envelope, we see the bookshelf has somewhat humorously been periodically opening and closing behind him as someone has been trying to find the right moment to reach out. And they reach out and get him the split second before he can tell her who was in the envelope and he is pulled away through the secret passageway behind this bookcase. Throughout the night, your standard spooky hauntings have been occurring in this old dark house, culminating in 
a portrait of the deceased falling dramatically off the wall. Mammy Pleasant declares that somebody will die here tonight because a portrait falling is an omen of death. This spooks some of the remaining no longer heirs to be. (laughs) Just as one is deciding to leave, a new person enters the house. He introduces himself as the guard at a local asylum. He says that a quote-unquote escaped lunatic is on the loose. He'd been chasing him and saw him on the West House grounds. He says that the escapee is a murderer who hunts his victims like a cat and tears them apart. I think it even says that he like claws their eyes out like a cat on a canary. I think I think they use they might use even the cat and the canary wording. They do, and it's like, time. okay, this is a bit much, guys. Yeah. <laughs> a little too on the nose. Um so as a result, he is not letting anyone leave the house until the escaped murderer is found. Later he's shown just casually carrying around a straitjacket and implies that At this point, he doesn't really care who, but he's coming out with somebody in a straitjacket. And I think this is supposed to be a threat to Annabelle, whose sanity is being questioned throughout the night. So I just heard my stomach grumble, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will find out if this house is actually haunted. So as far as hauntings go, there seems to be a lot of local legend about the house being haunted. And when Susan and Cecily arrive, their cab driver won't take them all the way up to the house because of ghosts. Which, when they do that, the dialogue card has like an animated, like wavy lined ghosts in all caps with an exclamation point. (laughs) So other potential hauntings include a gnarly hand that comes out to murder Mr. Crosby in similar style to the gnarly hand that we see in The House on Haunted Hill. With her inheritance, Annabelle discovers the location of the ginormous West Diamonds, which take the form of a diamond necklace. She finds this hidden in the wall and proceeds to immediately put the diamond necklace on her neck in her nightgown and then goes to bed, which, by the way, is a mood. A similar gnarly hand that murdered Mr. Crosby appears while she's sleeping and steals the diamond necklace right off of her neck. Like the hand, there are several other features of the house that could be explained by physical phenomena, but could also be paranormal. For example, the fact that this entrance hallway with these gigantic windows constantly has the wind blowing through the curtains to make it a super creepy hallway, but possibly they just left the windows open. I don't know. Hmm. Other pieces that also kind of fall into the category of creepy, but not necessarily haunted, are the cobwebs and dust all over the house. Much of the furniture is still covered in, like, a dust cloth. And when Annabelle goes to bed in the master bedroom, as Mammy Pleasant invites her to do, Mammy Pleasant tells her that nobody has slept in the bed since 
Cyrus 20 years ago, and the rest of the furniture in the room is still covered with dust cloths and looks like it hasn't been cleaned. And there is a side table with an envelope for Annabelle that also holds medicine bottles from when he was ill that they just put a cloth over. This to me is creepy, but also just poor housekeeping. <laughs> My theory is that that's actually just Mammy Pleasant's aesthetic, and she actually went through, cleaned it all up, and then added her own cobwebs and dust cloths later so that she could have the, the vibe she was going for. Right. She's like an original goth girl kind of situation. Exactly. I she like was that. goth before it got mainstream. <laughs> I mean, the architecture is gothic, so Good there you point. go. The architecture is gothic. The maid is gothic. It's just a true gothic tale. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, as far as hauntings and paranormal activity goes, any other pieces um, that you remember? There's the portrait falling, mm -hmm. which they attribute to his ghost, though I believe Susan, like, bangs the table shortly before it falls. Mm -hmm. So it could be he's angry that she's having this outburst, so his portrait fell. Or it could be she hit a table really hard and the portrait fell. And the clock that has not struck since he oh, died yeah. decides to strike that night. Fun little side note that I thought was kind of neat. Because it's a silent film, you can't actually hear the clock ding so they do this, like... I think the word you're looking for is chime. Chime. You can't hear the clock chime. Uh, so in order to show you that it's happening, like, they overlay the scene with film of the internals of the clock with the hammers hitting the chimes or whatever those are inside of it. So that was kind of fun. I had never thought about the fact that you might need to use visual cues in a silent film to let people know what sound is happening. I think it's really effective, too. I remember noticing that I was actually imagining hearing this big clock chiming as I was watching the characters assemble for the reading of the will, which, by the way, was scheduled for midnight. Yeah, he just wanted it to be a little spooky. <laughs> <laughs> So something I find kind of interesting about this film is that ultimately it's not a haunted house story and it's not necessarily trying to be one. It throws in some references here and there to the house potentially being haunted, but ultimately I think they're more about reflecting people's beliefs about the house than they are statements about the house itself being haunted. And yet we still see a lot of later works that are about haunted houses, which have either explicitly or implicitly been influenced by this film. And I find that really interesting how this lays a lot of the groundwork for what we know of as the haunted house without actually being about a haunted house. Yeah, I think... That's really true and really interesting because I'm trying to think about why is it that cobwebs are creepy and not just gross? Hmm. Or, I mean, to some extent, I think gross and creepy go together, like 
grotesque. <laughs> but I wonder if part of it is also linking murder, which is scary, and also quote-unquote escaped lunatics, <laughs> with an old dark house. I think that lends itself to the next step being haunted. Or something like the house on Haunted Hill where we don't know if it's ghosts or if it's a murderer or if it's both. I think those pair together really well. And that's where this one does a great job of kind of setting that foundation. Yeah. The next step after there is a living killer in a creepy house is there's a not living killer in a creepy house. Well, and for that matter, a lot of times the person haunting the house is someone who was previously a living murderer in the house, who either died in the house or died and now haunts the house and continue to do their murdery shenanigans to whoever comes into the house. And so it's kind of the logical next step from what we see in The Cat and the Canary. And The Cat and the Canary lays some of the groundworks for the effects of a house on someone's sanity. Because we see Annabelle's sanity, or at the very least, her perceived sanity, as being called into question by the house. We see those things where, oh, only this one person sees the thing, so now everyone else thinks that person's crazy, but something actually happened. And in this case, it wasn't ghosts. But again, the next step is that ghosts are doing the thing that no one else can see, as opposed to someone sneakily opening the bookshelf without anybody else seeing. Mm -hmm. And that association between ghosts and questioning sanity when ghosts can appear to one person but not somebody else in some versions of ghost stories can really play with that. One of the things that's supposed to be scary about this one is the threat that she could end up going to an asylum mm. because of the overzealous asylum guard who just wants to put somebody <laughs> in a straitjacket and the psychological evaluation she's going to have after a very, very harrowing night. Yes. Sleep deprived on top of that. <laughs> I think that touches on a fear that could be relatable to a lot of people, especially in that time. You know that you're sane, but what if everyone else were to treat you as though you were not? Mm. Especially when, in the worst case scenario, you end up in an institution being treated inhumanely. And that's the reality of what a lot of these institutions were historically. I thought it was interesting that, from the viewer's perspective... You never really question Annabelle's sanity. The threat isn't that she is going crazy from the house. The threat is that everybody else will think that she is. Yeah. Every time that happens, I feel more tension and anxiety for Annabelle. Each time it happens again, and we're sitting here like, yeah, they just came right out of the wall. You, you gotta believe her, people. But then realizing, like, well, that does sound kind of crazy if you didn't <laughs> see it happen. Uh, and that actually led to 
like a big relief for me as the viewer when she is finally able to demonstrate for them at least some example of what she's been talking about. I haven't seen Gaslight, but it makes me wonder if this was also an influence for that. To some degree, they're not necessarily maliciously trying to make her think she's crazy, but in some degrees they are. They mostly aren't responsible for the things that are happening to her, but they are responsible for how they're treating her with regards to those things that are happening. And again, it feels like it's that one step before you then get to a movie like Gaslight. The term Gaslight has been pretty commonly used, I think recently, colloquially, to describe the process of somebody interacting with somebody else in a way that makes that person question their own sanity. A lot of the time this will be one person lying and saying that they didn't say or do something or that something didn't happen the way the other person remembers, which then makes the other person wonder if they're making that up in their head. So this could be done maliciously in an abusive manner or potentially accidentally, I would think, if you had two different memories of the same situation. Yeah. But usually when we talk about it with the term gaslighting, it's a form of abuse. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about this, but my understanding is that that term came from a 1944 film called Gaslight, where a man and a woman are in some kind of relationship, and the man throughout the film is trying to make the woman think that she's crazy by turning the gaslight down so that they will flicker. And then she'll say, oh, do you see that flickering? And then he denies seeing what's right in front of her. And I think the tie-in to Gaslight makes even more sense when you think about the fact that they have something to gain by making Annabelle and others think that she's crazy, they being potential heirs. Because it kind of makes sense that if you're going to manipulate someone in that kind of way, there would be some kind of personal gain you could get from it, whether that's power in the relationship or, in this case, a huge inheritance. (laughs) Another thing I noticed visually about this one was that there were several moments where I got Scooby-Doo vibes. There's kind of a caper scene at one point where you have people running around the house and you have a shot of that windy hallway and like somebody's running in one door and out the other and then the next person comes in and out the other in that classic monster chase part of every Scooby-Doo episode. Yeah the theme song plays well and it's funny too because i i immediately thought of scooby-doo when susan hails the milkman because she needs a ride out of there and she tells him that there's ghosts at the house and he says ghosts it just felt like a very shaggy moment for him to to say that You also have, at the end, the quote-unquote lunatic (laughs) is uncovered, and he has, he's got like a fake eye and fake underbite canines. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote down like ogre mouth. (laughs) Yeah, and like a, doesn't he have like a a hunchback or something? I believe so. Yeah, and um, he's essentially unmasked, so they discover who it is. 
that felt very much like the unmasking that happens at the end of every Scooby-Doo episode. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Obviously, I'm not saying that this is based off Scooby-Doo because that would require (laughs) some kind of time hopping, but um, rather that Scooby-Doo is, I'm sure, based on a bunch of haunted house tropes that probably were influenced by this film. Or there's some kind of a common origin that they're all pulling from. Well, and it even even shares a bit of a sense of humor with this movie because this there's a lot of visual and physical gags. I mean, Paul Mm -hmm. Paul Jones is basically Shaggy and Scooby combined. (laughs) The dude hides under a bed, like, and then gets caught on a bed spring when he tries to come back out. Like, it very much feels like Scooby-Doo draws on the same type of humor as this film does. Mm -hmm. So we're talking a lot about the old dark house trope. Do you feel that this is a foundational work for the old dark house? Obviously it comes really early in cinematic history, but thinking to other types of works as well. Or do you think that it is an important stop along the way and that maybe there was something even older yeah i mean to some extent i feel like there's always a bigger fish i'm sure if we keep going back we'll find something else that influenced this what i can say is what i've seen from my reading this film was influential to the formation of the old dark house as a genre. So it may have existed prior. In fact, it technically did because the play was old dark house before this film. But from what I understand, it didn't necessarily stand alone as its own genre until after this. And then you see a lot of films that either are old dark house or our haunted house, which you don't have without old dark house. I would disagree. I think you can have haunted house that is new, idyllic house that Mr. and Mrs. Smith are moving into in hopes of running away from the past. Okay, that's fair. I guess I should say maybe the mid-century haunted house genre which feels very dependent upon the old dark house trope and maybe there are some films in there that deal with brand new houses and people moving in but i feel like some of that we don't really see until we start getting into kind of like the rise of suburbia i agree definitely yeah yeah i think i was playing the devil's advocate a little bit but i'm i think you hit the nail on the head that that comes with suburban houses whereas These older ones are usually gothic mansions, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe that's kind of the distinction is when you're talking these older haunted houses, I guess you could say Bly Manor isn't really an old dark house because I think she kind of talks about how nice and pretty everything is, but... It's old and it's a house. Yeah. (laughs) But that one's properly haunted, so... True. Um, But also Bly Manor predates what we know of as the old dark house trope. So I guess maybe it gets a little bit of a pass at that point. I'm also curious to see how film adaptations will do Bly Manor. I'm curious to see if they go ahead and use the old Dark House trope 
and make it a dark house, or if they go the Midsommar route, like you mentioned last episode. Yeah, I would love it if they went that route and gave us that kind of bright and sunny and yet so eerie. Mm-hmm. Eerie is exactly the word that I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. But, I'll, I mean, I'm sure I'll enjoy it either way. So, to you, what are the markers of an old dark house? I feel like a few of the things that you see would be either unlived in or very underutilized. So maybe one or two people living in this house. I'm kind of thinking of, um, in like a more modern example, like, uh, I think it's called The Others, where it's like a mother and her two kids, and most of the house is still is like under dust cloths and stuff like that. So things like that where maybe somebody does live there, but a lot of the house stays unused and in a very spooky state. Billowy drapes cobwebs often either poorly lit or in the case of like an old enough house gas lit where you're only going to get so much light out of a gas lamp and not a whole lot of heat either and not a whole lot of heat yes yeah yeah, cold i feel like that is really in there um or maybe only heated by fireplaces Mm -hmm. so you have lots of root like large gathering areas that might have a fireplace or a library with a fireplace I feel like sometimes there will be an owner or a master of the house, but it's somebody who's mysterious and or suspicious in some way of having been involved in some kind of nefarious activity or just lonely and greedy like Scrooge McDuck. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely something quintessential with the old dark house trope as far as who owns the house. Because it can't be an old dark house if it's owned by the protagonist's family member who's easy to talk to and open (laughs) and whatever. Yeah. Or it wouldn't be creepy if you owned the house outright. If you were the master of the house, usually it wouldn't be creepy until we get into these suburban stories. Yeah. Which now I'm trying to think, I wonder if there are any... It seems like that would be a weird story if it, like, opened with the protagonist buying a castle or a gothic mansion and then finding out it was haunted. I feel like I don't really know of many stories like that. I feel like when those stories happen, the protagonist is getting driven out of the house. Mm-hmm. Like, they buy the house, so they technically own it. Maybe it's like a new money, old money thing where it's yeah. like, but they don't really own the house. They don't own the house in spirit. They own it mm. only, like, legally. And maybe the cat and the canary is telling the story of Annabelle symbolically earning her ownership of the house by surviving this harrowing experience, (laughs) proving her sanity, and because she's a woman, partnering up by the end of the movie. Mm. She has the house legally, but she has to go through trial by fire in order to earn her place as the master of the house. And because it's the 20s, since she's an unmarried woman, part of becoming fit to be the master of the house is getting married so she can own property. Yeah. Well, because I think, too, the eventual love interest even says something to her along the lines of, like, you don't want to live in this big old house alone, do you? And it's like, well, maybe she does. Yeah. 
Mammy Pleasant's been doing it for the last 20 years, and look, so she's is, just fine. <laughs> so is Sarah Winchester. She's exactly. totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm hearing you say is that if she doesn't pair up, then she's going to end up a goth girl and or paranoid like Sarah Winchester. Well, when you put it that way, it actually doesn't sound too bad. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think maybe in the context of the movie, the implication might be that they're they're presenting Mammy Pleasant as what you don't want to be. And so by pairing her up, they're framing it as her avoiding that potentially. This is probably me reading a little more into it, but knowing the values of the time, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they're saying. Well, and... I would add on top of that, too, that maybe that wasn't even intentionally the point of that ending, but it's almost just taken for granted that she, that the heroine needs to end up with someone because it brings us back to the culture that everyone's comfortable with. Yeah. Kind of bringing it all together, I could see that we culturally see this cat and the canary set up as being creepy because the man who lived in the house was mysterious and wasn't sticking to the cultural norm, which would have been having a very obvious heir, which kind of comes along with having a family and doing what was valued at the time. I think there's less criticism of a man being alone and rich in a house, but I think that it lends itself to feeling, quote unquote, unnatural that he didn't have an obvious heir. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that, that that does lend itself to his perceived eccentricity. Is this idea that he couldn't, he didn't have somebody that he could just leave everything to. He needed to set up this somewhat convoluted process for pitching his inheritance as far away as possible. (laughs) And I think that also speaks to the extreme wealth comes with a price kind of theme as well. Yeah. Where he had this wealth, but it became a wall such that he was being mistreated by the people immediately around him because of the wealth. And also that he wasn't able to build meaningful relationships to have someone that he wanted to leave his fortune to. Only people that he didn't want to leave his fortune to. Uh Uh-huh. Looks like the doctor is here to check our sanity, so we are going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with our ratings. Provided neither of us is taken away in a straitjacket. And we're back. Not going to tell you the outcome of the evaluation because of HIPAA. (laughs) 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 On, On a scale of one to five, how spooky is The Cat and the Canary, silent film. Hmm. You know what? I'm going to give it a four, I think. Taken head-to-head, there's probably spookier, more modern stuff. But looking at this in context, add to the fact that it's a silent film, which adds some spookiness to it, and it's an early film, so you have kind of that early film quality and the kind of jumpy frames and everything on top of what we already talked about about the house itself, which lends itself to a pretty spooky look and a pretty spooky experience. 
What do you think? I'm kind of caught between a three and a four. I think I'm going to give it a three. I wasn't really scared throughout much of the film because it was pretty evident that the house was not haunted. It was pretty evident that the protagonist was not at risk of losing her sanity, although she was at risk of other people thinking or wanting her to be insane. Yeah. So that's actually where I give it a few points, is that the threat of being taken away to an asylum is scary. (laughs) But the rest of the time, I wasn't really that concerned about the protagonist's safety, nor was I that concerned about anyone else's. Mm. So it wasn't that scary to me. Yeah, okay. It still has those comedic elements as well that kind of... Keep it light. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not to say I didn't enjoy it, though. (laughs) Yeah. I would probably end up giving it a half ranking if somebody would let me give half rankings. (laughs) I don't know if you noticed, but I allowed half rankings in the Betrayal at House on the Hill episode. I did notice. Oh. (laughs) Is this kind of like the thing where, like, when I spill the glass... Mom gets mad at me, but when my friends are over and they spill the glass, oh, it's accidents happen. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, I think it's yeah. exactly that. <laughs> no, I forgot that we weren't allowing halves. Oh. I was just so caught up in the, in the moment. Uh, yeah. So on a scale from one to five, how haunted is the cat and the canary? I'm going to go with a one. As tempted as I am to do something kind of tongue-in-cheek about being haunted by the specter of how we used to treat people in mental institutions, I will leave that be for the moment and just say, there isn't any haunting going on here. Sorry. Yeah, I'm also going to give it a one. The movie is fairly clear that any of the things that might be quote-unquote hauntings are more to do with individuals' superstitions, either about the house or about events in the house. Everything that happens, even the painting falling, we know Susan hits the table first. And so even though Mammy Pleasant takes that as an ill omen, we know why it happened. It wasn't his ghost knocking it over or anything. So yeah, I think the movie is pretty solidly a one. On a scale of one to five, how spousy is the cat and the canary? I'm going to say two. The movie ends with Annabelle pairing up with someone and the implication that they're probably going to get married, but that doesn't really happen until the end, and there's really nothing spousy throughout the rest of the movie. There aren't any other married couples or anything. Everyone's there on their own, with the exception of Susan and Cecily being a unit. Obviously not a romantic one. So yeah, two because it's there at the very end, but I don't really pick up on it anywhere else. I absolutely agree. There's nothing spousy except the fact that this all happens because of a lack of a spouse, you could say. Yeah. On the deceased man's part. But yeah, otherwise, I'll go with it too for the (laughs) poorly attempted romance. 
Well, that about does it for our show. Thank you for joining us as we explored The Cat and the Canary. If you're new to Haunted Spouse, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-spook review. Reviews help us get our show out there and help listeners find the pod. So, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser, you can suggest a rating category that we will use in an upcoming episode. If you have comments, topic suggestions, or just want to say hi, send us an email at hauntedspousepod at gmail.com, and you can find us on social media at Haunted Spouses. Thanks for listening, and remember... If you're visiting an old dark house and you get a little too scared and you want to leave, just be like Paul Jones and tell everyone that you suddenly remembered that you have an appointment.